Welcome back for a very spooky episode of The Host Dispatch. I'm your co-host, Claire Bowman. In this episode, the Host Publications team had a really fun chat about the scary novels we've been reading to get in the spirit of Halloween. We talk about the horror genre, what makes a novel scary, and how some of our scary novel picks have been adapted to the screen. Some of the books we talk about in this episode are Dracula by Bram Stoker, Red by Chase Berggren, Rogue Melek by Leonore Fini, The Great Nocturnal by Jean Ray, and The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. We recommend shopping these spooky titles at your local bookstore or at bookshop.org, where a portion of all sales goes to supporting small bookstores across the nation. And stay tuned after the episode for some special bonus content where Anar and I talk about vampire movies we've watched recently and our personal favorite Halloween costumes. As always, thanks for listening. Halloween. Yeah, Halloween. Almost. Almost. It's a weird one this year. Full moon, blue moon, Halloween. I am so grateful that, Claire, you were like, let's do a Halloween episode because without the parties and, I mean, not that we're huge partiers, any of us, but (laughs) even just going into stores to see the decorations or um, planning a costume, you know, we're missing that this year. We are. But now I feel like I'm in the most spookiest spirit because of prepping for this episode. So Yeah, I've been trying to get spooky. <laughs> I've been trying to think of pumpkins, carved pumpkins. Wait, you carved a pumpkin? No, oh. not this year. Not this year. But I watch people do it on TV. <laughs> That's our lives now anyway. Oh, did you do that thing? No, but I watched someone do it on TV. <laughs> they were using chainsaws. Oh. They were using chainsaws on these pumpkins. They were big pumpkins and they were making giant things. Wait, is there a reality TV show in which they carve pumpkins? Yeah, it was a contest, $25,000 to the winner, and <laughs> they made these gigantic pumpkin things wow. and stuff like that. Well, I'll be looking that up later. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> I I was watching Halloween Wars on Hulu and felt really festive watching that. It is terrible, but it was kind of like um, you know, those chef shows where people compete and they have like a team. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that, but with Halloween decorations. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what this was like. It was like a cooking show. There were like there was like a team and, and then somebody'd get eliminated at the end of the show. And it was several episodes and of course I made the mistake of turning on my television so I couldn't turn it off until I found out who won, which was about <laughs> four and a half hours later. Mm-hmm. That's how they get you. <laughs> and I have had to cancel all this uh Halloween pumpkin carving paraphernalia that i'd ordered online because it looked so cool (laughs) when they were doing it and i ordered it and i was like oh the show was over i said i gotta cancel this crap i need you to to place that order again (laughs) no 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 (laughs) yeah we've canceled so many orders this is what quarantine has done to all of us though i like that though that's like a way to get into the spirit of halloween (laughs) it is it is. Usually I go into the store and I just end up coming out with a whole grocery cart. But that's Anar and me at Target. Yeah. We love our Target. Oh, God. <laughs> we do. Back right corner. The farthest point, that's where they put their seasonal stuff. It's such a strategy because you buy snacks, you buy outfits. Yeah. You buy dog things, candles along the way. Marketing. It's all about marketing, <laughs> which is which is scary in its own right. Yes. Another way to like get into Halloween, I think, is, besides, you know, going to Target um, and watching reality TV, <laughs> I liked reading scary books. Oh, yeah. Reading scary books. Please. I mean, I know we have like our scary books we're going to talk about for this episode, but I am curious to know if you guys have like favorite scary novels that we're not maybe scheduled to talk about today. Well, 
I think that, you know, any of the Stephen King books that I've read in the past, like the, the Pet Cemetery and things like that, it's been a long time, but those things scare the bejesus out. <laughs> they really do. They really do. And uh, I like reading over and over again the classic M.R. James horror stories like uh, A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. I love that story and it's it's a very subtle story and then you close it and you're like why am i terrified because at no point in the story did you jump out of your chair or something like that but at the end you're like that was too eerie i've always been a big baby (laughs) and so i had never read maybe some short stories here and there um begrudgingly but i'd never read like a spooky, scary novel before, um, because I'm that spookable. <laughs> I I genuinely always thought that it was um, just like gory, but in doing this project and falling in love with you know the books that I picked out for today, I realized that there's such a huge range of horror novels mm-hmm. and there's like an art to writing horror. I know that sounds so obvious. But it's not just like gory or like, you know, violent all of the time. There's like an art to psychologically scaring you. Yeah. yeah. In a way that you finish reading a book and you're like, why why am I scared? <laughs> um, but what about you, Claire? So I'm kind of like you in that I've I've never been a fan of horror or really of being scared. Um, certainly not when it comes to movies. Or television. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in recent years, got a little bit into spooky books, but more like psychologically thrilling books mm-hmm. or a little bit more in the ghost story genre um, by way of becoming totally obsessed with Shirley Jackson. Once I read her book, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, I was obsessed with her and still am. Uh, And then, of course, her famous scary novel. I don't know if it really is classified as horror. I don't think it really is, but it's called The Haunting of Hill House, which maybe a lot of people know about now because they made a Netflix series about it in the last couple of years. But I'll just go ahead and say on the record that Netflix series is an abomination (laughs) and it should not exist. So sorry if you like it, but it's not even the same story as the book. and. There's a character on that show who writes, I did watch it, yes. There's a character on that show who writes a book called The Hunting of Hill House, and it's a man. So they took Shirley's work and, like, appropriated it in, I think, just the worst possible ways. It's also really cheesy. But, yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with Shirley Jackson, and I love The Hunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in a Castle. Those are my faves. Noted. I think this is a new tradition, so yeah. I'm definitely up for recommendations I never, ever in my life thought I would be this obsessed with the horror genre. This is pretty exciting. This is fun. Thank you for bringing this to our lives, Claire. Yay! (laughs) I was going to ask you guys before we started, you know, what makes something scary for you? You said that it's not about people's heads getting chopped off and gore and stuff like that. But what is it that makes something scary for you? So in, in, in film and in photography and in audio, I hate the jump scare. Blood makes me very squeamish. A lot of violence always feels directed towards vulnerable characters, you know, mm-hmm. towards women and people of color. Um, they, there's always, you know, like, oh, if there's a person of color in a scary movie, they're always the first one to die. Um they never make it to the end, which is what's so fascinating about some of Jordan Peele's projects is that it kind of flips that uh, narrative. But um, but definitely just like like violence and gore and blood and things being chopped off. Um, but in literature, I find that it's more like in what I've read so far, just like you're turning the pages and there's a tension that's building and you don't know where it's going Mm -hmm. and I think that's really fun and that sits with you all night long and then you keep reading the next day and I think that's kind of what's been scary for me um yeah Claire 
I totally agree. Um, not a fan of horror films, classic horror films, although I'm dabbling. And largely due to the fact that I just don't like gore. But like you said, that kind of thing doesn't really happen in a novel. I mean, you can certainly have gore, but those aren't the books that I read in order to feel mm. a little scared. Mm -hmm. Like Shirley Jackson's novels, the two that I mentioned... It's psychological to put it, you know, to sort of reduce it down to a word. But what that is to me is I'm in the head, I'm in the brain of um, a character who is also being scared. Yes. That's mm -hmm. what's happening in definitely The Haunting of Hill House. And that character whose brain you're inside of by way of reading her sort of stream of consciousness, um, first person perspective they're an unstable character as well. They are not working with full faculties. And so you feel that way as soon as you start reading the book. You're in Eleanor's head and you are freaked out because she's freaked out. And then I love, like you said, that slow build page after page. That's what the novel ha has going for it for horror is to sort of burrow into your consciousness page by page and the mystery unfolds. So I... I already have goosebumps just thinking about that <laughs> process because it's so cool and it's also so scary. What about you, Joe? Well, I, I agree with both of you and, uh, you know, the psychology. and But for me, you know, one of the things that really will spook me is uh, the setting. It's, mm. it's the setting. And it's the, the language, you know, that the author uses to set something up not just as dark but as surreptitiously dark i don't even know what that means mm. but what does surreptitiously <laughs> dark mean but it it's it throws you off kilter a little bit and it's like what you know what's going on here and and it just you know it takes you somewhere into a realm takes me into a realm of doubt and mystery and I don't feel like I've got a good grip on what's going on that things are slipping mm -hmm. around me and then all of a sudden you know it's not a pop-out scene or something like the movies but then something happens and this whole psychology just plays out and then you know it just dissipates and I really, I, you know, that's the kind of thing I like. There's a darkness and it's just like there's a feeling of unease mm -hmm. that I can't quite get a grip on. Yeah. And that's, you know, where the short story I picked and the novella that I picked, you know, kind of feel like they are. Unsettling. <laughs> so when I worked at Melbourne Books, there was always this copy of Dracula on the shelf. It's so and beautiful. It is gorgeous. It is by Four Corner Books. Um, and I'd wanted it for what feels like the longest time. But when you have a budget and you're like in a bookstore full of brand new poetry books every week, it's hard to prioritize Dracula. <laughs> and that's a big hardback edition of Dracula. <laughs> that's not a cheap one. It is huge, but it is worth the investment. Let me tell you a little bit about the book because I feel like a lot of people might already be familiar with Dracula. <laughs> uh, Dracula is by Bram Stoker, and this copy by Four Corners is accompanied by pencil drawings by James Pyman. And... Um, goes without saying this is a gothic horror novel and it's from 1897 which is a little bit more recent than I thought it was but for y'all I'll show you some of the drawings here the illustrations are inspired by scenes in the chapters so it really complements the work and the book designer John Morgan used different typefaces for each character. So there's like a very artistic element to Whoa. the bookmaking and layout component of the book, which I think is really fun because I'm obsessed with typeface. And it's like you see a type and one of these is like a doctor. And I'm like, oh, like this is a very studious, very no frills, almost like you could hear the accent. Yeah. <laughs> the proper like serious accent. Um, and then there's other ones where it's like a character that's kind of aloof and frilly, like it's almost like a comic sans type of type. So it's really fun to shift voices. And if you have not read Dracula, 
aren't familiar with it. It's 27 chapters, and throughout the chapters, um, it's written in an epistolary type of way in which you're reading letters from this person to this person, or you're reading diary entries or newspaper clippings. And it's completely structured in that way, which I genuinely did not know going in, which was really fun. Um, It really complements the tension um, that it slowly builds throughout the 500 pages. Whoa, that's a lot of pages. In that, like, you'll be left hanging in one diary, and then you'll pick up in someone else's letter, like, you know, I haven't heard from this person in a while. I wonder what they're up to. Um, so it's really fun in that way. Um, ooh, I also wanted to mention that this gorgeous book, the cover is this like gorgeous yellow cloth bound cover with a red typography. Um, and it echoes the first UK edition ooh, from 1897. That's so. really cool. That's awesome. It's so much, so much attention is paid to the typography and the printing and the binding and everything in all of those four corner books Mm -hmm. that's that's really a beautiful book yeah I was talking to Claire about how if there's a book that we know we are gonna love and it's you know it's got a little bit of a price point it's on the higher end like it's generally worth it because I know AJ is gonna read this book as soon as Mm -hmm. I'm done with it um you know, and it's going to live on my shelf. And hopefully we have generations to come that will enjoy this book. And I definitely think this is something that people will love to flip through. Like you said, there's so much attention to detail and like art to the crafting of the book itself, which is so special. It's great to have that combination of a beautiful book on your bookshelf that's also a really fun piece of literature that you enjoy reading yeah. because sometimes I'll have a beautiful book but it's like ah, I don't want to read it but I don't want to give it away because it looks so nice you know but you got both there y'all I am obsessed with vampires now obsessed <laughs> like up at 3 a.m just like thinking about vampires and then reading about vampires and like vampire history And what's really fun about Dracula is that I thought it was going to be really stuffy and rigid, but there's some parts that are funny and, and it's, it's really refreshing. I don't know if it complements our current time in which like, we don't have letters, but we have like bloggers and we have like email and we still have We have letters. (laughs) I mean... No one writes letters. Anymore. Some people do. I mean, except you. You're the only person I know. But <laughs> but it was really, yeah, it was really refreshing. But while I was reading Dracula, I couldn't help to, like, feel like this monster horror invasion mm. literature, how it really lends itself to, just like science fiction, as we mentioned before, lends itself to marginalized or queer stories. And some of the like anxiety or horror that marginalized voices feel day to day and so our protagonist is trapped in a castle and it's like the description that is used in the way that that character expresses his anxiety is like something that I feel like a lot of people of color feel day to day Um, and I'll tell you guys a little bit about what my supplementary reading is but I'll read to you guys just like a quick little paragraph so this is from Jonathan Harker's journal and Jonathan Harker is just hilarious to me because he's just like wow uh Count Dracula sleeps in a coffin that's weird and he's just like oh wow he tried to bite my neck um weird it is just he's so stupid and I love it um But I was really touched by this paragraph. June 25th, morning. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and dear to his heart and I the morning can be. When the sun grew so high this morning that it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window, the high spot which it touched seemed to me as if a dove from the dark arc had lighted there. My fear fell from me as if it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in the warmth. 
I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me. Last night, one of my post-dated letters went to post, the first of the fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. Let me not think of it. Action. And it was just this like moment with this character. I just love no man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and dear to his heart and I the morning can be. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. But it is. Yes. Yes. It's got a very sophisticated ring, that prose. But not stuffy. Not, not stuffy. stuffy. That's one no. reason that's one reason I have stayed away from reading Dracula is because I've always thought it would be a a slow Victorian Gothic novel and it's five hundred pages and I'm mm. like mm, dark. You know, it is so not stuffy. It feels so contemporary. And when I was reading about the cover and like how it was like a yellow cloth bound, supposedly during this era, books that had yellow on the cover were kind of just the hip, like not your usual stuffy book. Um, so it was already kind of considered almost what I would describe as like hipsterish or like indie. Um, and so it is 500 pages, but something that I've really been comforted by is that it is 500 pages because it's just like a slow, a slow burn you have all of these different characters that you step into their head with. Um, so it's not like you're stuck with this one person. You have varying perspectives. It's really nice. That's awesome. That was really good. I'm I'm so excited about that book. Oh, yeah. Sounds awesome. I wanted to mention um, my supplementary reading because Dracula is just very masculine. It is very much a man's world there's a lot of violence, but also how I mentioned before that Dracula in itself, this text can really lend itself to being turned on its head and broken down into something that is more contemporary and useful. And Joe had recommended this book to me um, that was at Malvern called Red by Chase Bergrun. And they're erasures from Dracula. Yeah. And it is so well done and just so beautiful um i finished it last night and it ends so powerfully so this is a scan hmm. that's awesome we'll post these on instagram some of the erasures that is such a cool project you know with the erasures it's an erasure is hard to do mm-hmm. and hard to pull off um and this stands alone as a work of art with or without dracula i personally do believe that reading Dracula helped me appreciate this work even more um, because I am seeing... So these poems, there's 27 chapters, um, just like in the book. And I really believe that it complements and holds the tone of Dracula and the tension. um, And it really builds in the same way that the book does. Obviously so much quicker mm-hmm. than 500 pages um which is nice but um it's just really beautiful i will keep it brief but um wanted to read you guys a couple of really short lines from this we never refer to sadness as something that looks like secrecy but it does my girl blood my queer blood seemed to keep breaking down the secret of my body coming out a series of little shutters scattering my strength the difference between sleeping and dying oh my goodness that is so good it is it is just so good um i did not think that one of my favorite books of the year would be dracula erasures um (laughs) this is such a powerful read and I also wanted to mention, um, so the author is Chase Bergrun, and this work was written at the same time that they were beginning their own gender transition, which I really feel like, not that that is necessary knowledge, but you feel that like such an intense human transition throughout the work itself. Um, yeah. And where we begin in chapter one is so different than where we end in the book. Um, 
and it builds and it builds and it builds and it's just such an extraordinary accomplishment and if you don't read any spooky books (laughs) you have to read red it's put out by birds llc and if you search for it online it's R space E space D space. Nice. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Such a fascinating project, that erasure book of poems. And I love the way that it also is taking another idea and turning it on its head. You talked about the kind of othering of people of color and their kind of disposability, you know, the way they're portrayed in the horror genre. But I like the idea of taking the idea of a monster and, um, having it be something that we both identify with and also um, like completely change our perspective on. Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful that Joe brought this to my attention because I needed that contemporary like lens. So it made for a more powerful reading. Nice. That's that's great. I'm glad that worked out. Joe, what did you bring for us? Well, I brought things that are definitely not 500 pages. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I uh, I brought two books published by one of my favorite presses that publishes mainly a lot of surrealist things, Wakefield Press. One is a novella called Rogamelic by Leonora Fini. And Leonora Fini was more known as a painter, and she lived a long time. She's from Argentina. And, uh, you know, the the book was written really pretty late in her life. She wrote three short novels, right around 100 pages or so, mm. towards the end of her, well, not the end of her life. She lived a long time, 1907 to 1996. Whoa. But she wrote the novels in the 1970s. And she had already established herself well within the painting world and things. She even did the uh, the cover of the Rogmelik book, which is a a person who's rather blue, wearing a feathered cape with a uh, looks like some kind of crown. But it's it's very beautiful. And the the bio, if I could read just part of it puts it very succinctly that she was the surrealist tried to co-opt her but she uh she said she never identified with them rejecting the role of muse Mm. which the surrealist being a very male movement put women into Mm -hmm. so she rejected the role of muse she focused on portrayals of women as subjects with desire as opposed to objects of desire. Oh, that's awesome. And was groundbreaking in her explorations of mythology, androgyny, death, and life as mannerist theater. So she's a very interesting woman and very strong woman. And uh, if you look up her artwork on the internet, it's just stunning. It's just stunning. I'd, I'd like to own a print or two of some of her things. They're very, very beautiful. And the New York Review of Books has used her artwork on a couple of their titles. And uh, she she's quite well known. But this novella is about a journey to a mysterious island. <laughs> and it's a first-person narrative. And it just starts with I never travel but I heard about this island and I had to go and you get on the ship to the island and your first dinner you know there's a cat sitting across from you it's it's that kind of world you know and as I said it's it's disconcerting but you know their adventure gets deeper and deeper into you know what the surrealists would do it's a dreamlike world that also borders on the very real because it's a dream that is your desire Mm. in some way. And this main character is driven to go to this island where there's therapeutic services performed by monks and they massage you and put oil on you. And at one point, they're towards the climax of the novel there's a costume party because the king is going to arrive 
and the monk who's been giving therapeutic massages to the narrator dresses the narrator in octopuses <laughs> that have been trapped from the deep lagoon out in front. And so, whereas the cover shows somebody dressed in a cloak of feathers, at this point, this guy has tentacles coming off of him. And they're different colors. They're lavender, they're mauve, they're turquoise. It's very, very richly described. But that's his costume. Wow. So that's where you're living. And then during the party, there is a, uh, a performance of some music. And uh, I just wanted to read this short section just to give you an inkling of the type of displacement of your where you feel. Yes, please. So he's at the party and he says, the rest of my body is describing the music. The rest of my body heard before my ears did. Little by little, brief sounds, a jingling, the sounds of tiny bells reached my delighted ears. Then the very distant notes of a glass harmonica, a harpsichord, and even drums, guttural sounds, dissonances. I was also getting used to the fading light, to those pale reflections that seemed to come from the sea. We had an overview from on high. I stared at the three walls, and I saw, or thought I saw, all the bones beginning to move slowly. I saw the iliac bones bunched all together. He's a room full of bones, throbbing, creating strange shapes of crowns and fans. I saw the tibias rise like piano keys, sometimes playing in groups. I saw the femurs turning round and round and other bones, clavicles, great trochanders, vertebrae, making spherical clock-like motions abruptly stopping from time to time. The music grew more and more intense, audible, with broad harmonies. Certain notes were coming from a part of the wall where the bones were half-hidden by creeping lichens. That's, that's where our party is. And this, guy's in, <laughs> this guy's enjoying that wearing a suit of octopuses. And so, you know, quite the party. Joe, yeah. can I just say that just based on your description of who this writer was, I was already primed to be obsessed with her. Oh and God. after that passage, I can already tell you I will be calling Malvern Books and buying whatever they have that she's written because... The painter turned writer yeah. is such a fascinating type of writer to mm -hmm. me. I love Leonora Carrington. I love Atel Adnan. Uh, her poetry, yeah. uh, very different painter, very different writer. It's fascinating. And I feel like the obvious connection is it would be very visual, you would yes. think. And yes. I love that that passage really was visual. The femurs, like piano keys, is kind of like cartoony, but mm -hmm. really delicious imagery, you know? Yeah, yeah. What was that first line? My body, my body hears. Yeah, my body heard before my ears did. I love that. Ugh. Yeah, you so know cool. What that feeling is you just know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god, that is spooky. Octopuses. And the thing is, oh if this god. book went on for more than 110 pages or so that it is, it would be like, oh, I'm so tired of this. But at 110 pages, you've had enough, and you know. It's just balanced. It's just balanced. Say the writer's name again, please, Joe. I'm going to write that down. Leonore Feeney, F-I-N-I. And I think this is the only thing that's been translated into English of hers, but I'm not sure. But you definitely, definitely want to go look at her artwork on the internet. It's very, very beautiful. So to move on, the other Wakefield book that I picked was by Jean Ray. He's called the Belgian Edgar Allan Poe. And he lived for quite a long time, from 1887 to 1964. But his books are very, is collections of short stories. And I think Wakefield's done two or three volumes of them. They're just odd. They're just odd. And the one that I read for this was a longer one, about 40 pages, something like that. It's called The Great Nocturnal. And it's just like, well, it's just all in the setting. 
It's all, mm-hmm. that's why I think I was talking about the setting earlier. It's all in the setting of the way that he builds up this city of Ghent uh, in Belgium. And he has these characters and it's in this world. And this one character is walking down the street and it's, of course, dark, surreptitiously dark, maybe. But he sees a rat (laughs) munching on something on a stairway. But his friend says, no. no, that's not a that's not a rat. That's your friend. And he looks up and it, it is his friend. And he says, Well, why was he looking like a rat before? <laughs> we all have friends that look like rats. <laughs> and then and then he goes in and the painting of a saint in his room explodes into flames. That's not good. Yeah. And you know, it's just fun stuff like that. But there is the mysterious in this in this house that he lives in the mysterious captain of the Sudan who lived there, but (laughs) no longer does, but everybody's terrified of the thought of him and they keep the door locked. But the door was open one night and there was a scent of perfume and there was cigar smoke. No person was there and a book fell off the shelf. It's a red book. The book was interesting. It was about summoning demons But within the book were placed handwritten pages which contradicted the way that the book was written. And then you go to a police inspector and murders start happening around the neighborhood. And then you get the description of a murder. And then the characters reflect upon the nanny that he had when he was young and throwing the soil on her her grave when she died. And... Then his one love who disappeared. And then this mysterious bar that's only there every once in a while that you go into and has a mysterious statue with incense burning in its stomach. And you get to the point where he's having a good time. But if I may read, he says he pushed the door and saw the low couches, the monstrous stone idol and the stained glass behind which the mysterious light pulsated. Romeon, he cried out. She was by his side without him seeing her coming. There you are, he said. Now I know what I've desired all my life. She fixed a long glance on him, then murmured in a low voice, Ah, how sweet it would be if I were alive now. Alive? She hugged him, and he felt a great cold invade him. I've been dead for many years, my friend. Theodule uttered a cry of terror, but at the same time, terrible joy invaded him. Romeo, yes, I recognize you very well. That's his first love. And yet I detect another within you. A supple, sturdy arm went round him, and he felt himself drawn to a body firm, yet cold. Miss Marie, his nanny. This is sick. (laughs) If you want, she said, one day you may realize that though strange and terrible, the truth is simple. Time was between us, but it no longer is. Come. Behind the glass, the light suddenly grew frenzied. Theodule, the main character, pointed to it, and Romeo quickly brushed his hand aside. No, no, pretend it isn't there. What is behind there? The woman made a gesture of dread. There will be plenty of time to know, my dear, when I return to you. And she pressed her lips to his to avoid a question. How many years has it been since I kissed you like that? Can you tell me who I am now? Oh, yes, Romeo. No, Miss Marie, I loved you. Now I know it is my destiny to love you. For this, I obeyed the book, and upon the aid of the great nocturnal. The woman let out a terrified cry. And you dragged me from the tomb for this? Wow. Wow. That's just fun. That's just fun. That is so intense. (laughs) So it sounds like a touch of murder mystery a touch of the occult, 
and a whole lot of like surrealism and ghosts. <laughs> yes, yes, the whole thing of the desire, the the secret book in the text within the text, and all that kind of mm-hmm. wonderful stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's the part that sounds occult. Whenever there's a secret text for summoning demons, I just go ahead and assume that witches are involved. <laughs> yes, yes, very much, very much. I love it. Thank you. So those are both from Wakefield Press? Those are both from Wakefield Press. I love it. That's such a great press, too, if if you're Mm -hmm. interested in body horror and surrealism and just kind of dark, dark novellas. I feel like that's their niche. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. I enjoyed your reading of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, me too. I could do story hour all day. Yeah, that'd be fun. This reminds me of like when David Lynch just reads a weather report for one minute every day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been wanting to start listening to that. Joe, we just need you to read one sentence of horror every day and upload it to YouTube. <laughs> yeah, every day. Claire, so what'd you bring us? So I wanted to read a kind of classic horror novel um, since I really hadn't ever before. And I got The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Ooh, I love that. It's a really cool edition, um, which was put out by Melville House Classics. Um, Speaking of octopi, it's got, you know, some wriggly-looking turquoise tentacles on the cover, which is really fun. You just automatically know when you pick it up. It's a monster novel. So, yeah, like, I don't know that much about horror genres and literature and I I know a few terms but I know that monster novels seem to be their own kind of thing but even within that um Lovecraft was such a famous or became such a famous founder of of horror that Lovecraftian horror is an actual genre um so he was an American writer of weird and classic horror fiction and virtually unknown during his lifetime He was published almost exclusively in pulp magazines uh, before he died in poverty at the age of 46. But yeah, now he's regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors of of supernatural and horror fiction. Um, And so his writings based on the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, that's it, Cthulhu. So that mythos inspired a large body of, of... horror pastiches, including like games and music and media and all these characters kind of recur in other writers' horror writing. Um, And so the settings and themes from that mythos is considered Lovecraftian horror. So like I said, he has this whole genre around him. And I do want to name right off the bat a couple of things. Um, number one, he's famous for being horrifically racist yes. in ways that go beyond just being the product of his time, right? Like he was born in the late 1800s and lived into the 1940s. Uh, but even beyond just being a white man living in those times, um, I found this on online. His wife, Sonia Green, describes watching him being driven into a rage at the mere sight of minorities and says that he explained his behavior thusly. It is more important to know what you hate than it is to know what's a love. So he was very open, apparently, about his racism. And there's a poem that I won't name that he wrote um, that you can find as another famous example of how he felt about Black people specifically. And so I name all of that to say that there's this new show on HBO called Lovecraft Country. It's based on that genre, like I said, of Lovecraftian horror, not necessarily a remake of any one of his stories or novels. Um, So it's using sort of the mythos and the characters that he created, acknowledging his influence while also like indicting and denouncing the racism that was at the center of his work. To be honest, it's it's definitely present in some of his books. So it's a really cool project. Um, We're going to talk more about it later, but I just wanted to go ahead and name it right off the bat. Because uh, it's important to know that I'm not necessarily saying H.P. Lovecraft is my favorite horror writer. He's not, but he's super famous. And I wanted to read like a classic monster story. And I'm super glad that I did because the Dunwich Horror is a worthwhile read for anyone interested in the history of horror 
or if you're a Lovecraft Country fan and you kind of want to dig a little deeper into understanding the writer and the genre that that series is kind of pushing up against. So with all of that said, I'm going to give like a brief synopsis of the book and then talk about kind of how that informed my viewing of, of Lovecraft Country. So Dunwich, Massachusetts is where the story takes place and it's a fictional town um, with like a bunch of wilderness around it. It's very hilly and the peoples that live there are considered rural folks. I think I can use the term hillbilly, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, so it's based on several old New England legends. One such legend is the notion that whippoorwills can capture the departing soul, which I thought mm. was really cool. And that's a big part of the book. So the world of the Dunwich Horror introduced me to a word that I thought I already knew, which is the word decadent. And though I realize that the way I use that word is not exactly correct, but the definition in this book is like the act or process of falling into an inferior condition or state. So like deterioration and decay. So this place is described as a very decadent rural town in the hills, but I was confused by that because it actually means it's falling apart. And mm. it also sort of implies a certain level of moral decay. Um, the town people, Lovecraft writes their, their dialogue in a phonetic way, the way that it's spelled. Mm. So you get the sense that they have a really thick accent of some kind. It's not the kind of, you know, Southern accent I'm used to. So mm. it's hard for me to imagine what it sounds like, but it's their speech is really, really heavily aestheticized. So let's get into it. Wilbur Waitley is the main character, and he is described as the hideous son of Lavinia Waitley. And she is described as like a deformed and unstable albino mother. Uh, and the father is unknown. And so all these strange events surround Wilbur's birth, and he matures at like a really gross rate, <laughs> reaching full manhood, which for him is over nine feet tall um, within a decade. So he's like 10 years old in the book, actually, but he's this full grown nine foot tall man. It's very creepy. So we already have kind of a monster element happening right there. And the locals shun them. Uh, dogs fear him and go crazy whenever he's near. Um, his grandfather, who he and his mother live with, is some kind of like hillbilly sorcerer and indoctrinates him into all these dark rituals. And the family, they go into town and the locals are all freaked out because they keep buying cattle. But then when they look up at their pasture, there's no more cattle than there were the day before. Like they just disappear. So they're obviously doing something sinister with the cattle. And um, you come to understand that they have this sort of sequestered and unseen thing or presence in their house. And year by year it grows. And so the townspeople are actually putting it together. They're like, okay, they have, they've boarded up the house. There's a thing in there and the cattle are disappearing. Um, we kind of know that there's a monster in there. We just don't know what it is. And we are super scared of these people. And Wilbur's grandfather, the hillbilly sorcerer, <laughs> uh, dies and the whippoorwills take his soul. And the mother dies soon afterwards as well. And so then you just have Wilbur and this colossal entity up in this farmhouse and Wilbur goes to a university to he wants to get his hands on a copy of a book called the Necronomicon which is cool it's a callback that comes up in Lovecraft Country um, and the library has one of the only copies that exists and he's looking for a passage to quote open the door so we know he's up to something but we don't know what um, there's this librarian, Dr. Armitage, who won't give him the copy. He knows something nasty is afoot and it's against policy. And so Wilbur breaks in one night to the university grounds into the library to steal it. And, um, I think I may have mentioned that dogs really hate Wilbur and bark and go crazy when he's around. And so there's a guard dog at the university that goes wild and attacks and kills Wilbur that night. And so the librarian and two professors are just looking at his kind of horrific body as he just melts into the floor. So now he's dead. The main character dies. <laughs> and 
there's just this presence now. And all the townspeople are like, what is happening? All these sounds up on the hill are getting louder at night. They don't understand it. So, of course, the culmination of all of this is like the monster gets loose. And that librarian and the professors from the university come to town because they've put two and two together with the Necronomicon and the passage that Wilbur was reading that he was doing some dark sorcery. And so they come to check it out. And, you know, that's when the, quote, Dunwich horror takes place, which is what we're building up to the whole time. Um, I think one of the cool techniques he uses is it's going to be goofy no matter what when the monster makes itself known and we get to see it and we get a description of it. Like, that's going to be cartoonish and silly, I think, no matter what it looks like. And so one of the things he does is it's invisible. So then it's even scarier because you get footprints and destruction. The town starts getting destroyed and it's eating people and stuff, but you don't know what it even looks like. So I won't say all of the rest of what happens, but the librarian, Dr. Armitage, and the two professors have to use a bit of sorcery to contend with with this uh, monster. So some of the problematic elements (laughs) of this book are Wilbur Waitley's character description. So he's described as a dark, goatish-looking infant when he's born, and the neighbors continually refer to him as, quote, Lavinie's black brat. So I think that's where some of Lovecraft's racism is kind of like sneaking in in this story, is we have this weird white town and white family, and then her son is considered, you know, horrific looking, not just because he grows to this crazy height at a young age, but because he's really dark. So that's pretty icky, uh, you know, just to be upfront about it all. There's like a racist tension there. And also there's, I really take issue with this. There's no female characters. Lavinia dies and really isn't much of a character. And it's a book about ancient witchcraft and the occult. And I'm just like, where are the witches at? So that's the Dunwich Horror A super fun ride, but, you know, you get to the end of it, and from our uh, current perspective, there's definitely some problematic stuff, I would say. I have a quick question for you. Yeah. So what would you say qualifies something as Lovecraftian instead of just, like, horror or, like, a monster novel? It's the, the fact that people continued writing about the specific types of characters monsters that he created the Mm. cthulhu monster uh it's like a whole genre of horror now yes like it's kind of like the vampire yes there's the cthulhu mythos you know which is the other world yes the old ones that want to get in and things like that you know it's 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 a whole combination of a lot of things that kind of find it a node in Lovecraft's writing, you know, about summoning demons and, you know, the other world, the other side that you need to protect. Uh, It offers a good starting point, you know, for a collection of ideas. Yeah. Just like archetypes and characters. Yeah. And definitely the Dunwich Horror is part of that mythos as well, right? It's all about this thing was summoned from the other realm and it is just one of many that could have gotten through right. if Wilbur hadn't died. Like, he didn't get to complete his dark sorcery plan. He didn't get the door open. Yeah. Ran out of cows. <laughs> it was an interesting introduction to to Lovecraft. And um, I can definitely say that I would be interested in reading more. And especially as I continue to watch the series that is out on HBO, Lovecraft Country, I think I might want to read a couple of short stories because they reference some of the stories in that show. What episode have you made it to? So I'm five episodes in, okay. um, which is really, it's fine because I'm not going to be delivering any spoilers on this podcast episode for anyone. It was really interesting. I went pretty slowly through it trying to take note, you know, for this and... Um, I really think that actually doing a bit of research and looking up a lot of the references, because these episodes are chock full of references, that was really, really rewarding. It made me like the show even more. It's been getting better and better every episode for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I know you and I spoke about how there felt like there was like a Scooby-Doo element 
that yeah. seems to like the goofiness seems to have dissipated after like episode three or so but I'm in the throes of it and it's so good and definitely has made me curious about Lovecraft so I think I understand that goofiness now there's absolutely no way that it's not on purpose Mm -hmm. is my perspective and they have taken a lot of heat for it you know there's plenty of criticism out there for the show um for those who don't know it's, it's a horror television series based on um, the Lovecraftian horror genre, and um, it just premiered in August, and it follows a Black Korean war veteran named Atticus or Tick Freeman. And so we, we already are telling Black stories in it and really turning the Lovecraftian racism on its head, <laughs> and that's definitely the project, or I would say a project, of the show. Um, and the aesthetic is is something that people criticize because it changes. Like there is an overall aesthetic, but I finally figured out five episodes in that each episode is playing on a different movie genre trope yeah. while existing within horror the whole time. So, for example, like episode four, you're in like pulp adventure, like Indiana Jones style. And it's goofy. There's definitely parts where you're not taking it as seriously as when you're having like some like deep racial traumas are being exposed Mm -hmm. in other parts so then you're a little I feel a little off kilter sometimes because I'm like oh yeah this part was super Indiana Jones or Scooby-Doo-ish but then the next part is deeply disturbing so I feel like the true horror of the show comes through telling those stories. It's set in the Jim Crow South in the 50s, right? And so we're telling the stories of these Black folks who are dealing with actual horror in their lives. And it's nothing we don't already know, but to see it portrayed on screen is super powerful. Oh my gosh, yes. And so then some of the, like, this isn't reality horror, like the monsters or the ghosts (laughs) get to be a little goofy because that's not the true horror of the show. God, that sounds great. And the the idea of spinning it that way, I'm so glad that that's happening because it's a rich mythos to come from and things like that. This is a great way to use the mythos and identify the real problems of the originator Mm -hmm. of it and just deny them. You know, he would be turning in his grave that this would even be happening. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I love that thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. The show is so cool because it really does restore power back to the Black characters who are already in a setting where they don't have, you wouldn't think they would have any power, right? They're in the Jim Crow South um, for part of it. I think it does so in really ingenious and sometimes even subtle ways. But even in like the major story arcs, like how Tick you know, they're basically captured. He and his uncle and um, his friend are captured by this white occult society. Uh, and you just basically, you feel like you're in the film, get out. I At least I did. I was like, oh no, do not go into that mansion. The white people are like cartoon character white people. Like their hair is so blonde and their eyes are so blue and they're pale and you're just terrified of them. <laughs> But yeah, they do go in there and they do get captured and bad things do happen to them. And then, you know, by way of like a bloodline narrative, Tick basically gets the power back. You're all the way through episode nine, right? My last episode was, so last night was the finale, right? Mm, Oh, okay. And then I have the finale and then one more episode left. But I watched the Hepolitis one which is my favorite, which was like a science fiction, just so beautiful to watch. Um, And that's been my favorite episode for sure. This is so good. I have really enjoyed getting a chance to like read what I would say is somewhat mainstream with some of like the Lovecraft and the Dracula, but also like I love that we have Wakefield books, which you wouldn't think to go to for horror in October yeah you know because it's so in the surrealist camp that you know you're just kind of like oh like I could read Wakefield all year long and now it's like oh no like surrealism is a really great genre for like subtle spookiness (laughs) yeah for sure well it's a different kind of scary and it really plays into that that type of scary where 
you don't know what's going on, and so therefore you can't predict what's going to happen next. I love monsters. I never thought that I would... And I just love monsters in that, like, like you mentioned before, as a representation of ourselves, Mm. but also it could be a representation of um, what we feel oppresses or scares us. Um, And I think that's really powerful. Um, Yeah, it's like this quote I found uh, when I was researching Lovecraft Country, a writer who was talking about the adventure episode, episode four, says that part of that critique on how, like, when was the last time you saw an Indiana Jones style film that was centered around Black people's experiences? You know, even in a totally fictional, bizarre way, it just doesn't exist. And the quote is, one man's exploratory adventure is a horror story for an entire indigenous culture. Yes. That really sums it up, not just on a fictional level, that's real. Like, the exploratory adventures of white people have literally resulted in genocide for indigenous cultures. So I thought that was just such a powerful way. When I read that line, I was like, oh my God, like the goofiness of it kind of melts away. You're just like, yes, like this story really needs to be told. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's invasion horror um, in with like H.G. Wells and mm-hmm. um, some of the other popular like invasion horror writers. You have aliens from outer space you have monsters coming up you've Godzilla you have you know these other creatures invading us um but in reality if you really make it a realist experience if you take from real life like yeah like this all really lends itself to making it realistic um and I mean what is more horrific than reading the news? Right. Really seeing and being aware of like what colonialism has done and um, what's happening around the world. I mean, climate change is a horror story. And that idea of the other in horror and like that, like you said, the alien invasion, the monster invasion, it's something from the outside coming into our little rural hometown that is we thought was so tight and so safe. That idea, at least in Lovecraft's work, the other has been someone, if related to human beings at all, related to people of minority groups. And that's asinine because if anything in history re- really like resembles that genre of writing, it's white people colonizing. This genre is really, really ripe, like you said earlier, for telling the stories of people of color. Yes. Perfect. Hey, that was awesome. I love Dracula. I love the Dunwich Horror. I read that when I was, you know, nightmare age, and it still gives me the creeps. And uh, thanks for listening to my stuff, you know, and thanks for having me on the show. I love talking to y'all. Joe, it's always such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yay, this was super fun. So much fun. I did not think that I would be obsessed with vampire culture. <laughs> like earlier this weekend, um, I watched Interview with a Vampire, which was, yeah. I mean, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, a baby Kirsten Dunst. Like, <laughs> they all have magnificent hair. That was really fun. Um, and then I watched Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, which is just beautiful um it's really just about like two vampires that have lived for a long time that love each other and one of them is like living in detroit and severely depressed (laughs) (laughs) um have you seen what we do in the shadows i saw the show like one episode you have to watch the movie is that the one with jermaine clement yes okay i really want to watch it it's so good. And Taika Waititi? 
He's in it. Did he direct that? He and Jermaine, like, produced it. And oh then they produced God. the show, too. So it's different characters, but it's still super funny. I think you'll appreciate what we do in the shadows because, like, you're describing okay. movies that have kind of a cool vampire aesthetic. What we do in the shadows is the perfect palette cleanser for those films because it's super funny, but the aesthetic is still very, like, they look like real vampires in goofy old-timey clothes but they're living in like contemporary New Zealand it's so funny they live in this creepy old house but they're just they go out to the bars and yeah I feel like they actually did a lot of research in the historical aspect of vampires to make this movie um because Jermaine's character is like a classic vampire from history which is Vladislav the poker um that is awesome I'm definitely gonna watch it I I'm pacing myself to just really be in the realm of vampires and like this vampire folklore uh, for the rest of the month Um, Mm -hmm. because I'm just really having fun with it. And like you said that they did research for this movie. There's so much, so much there, which is really thrilling. Um, Yeah. Well, this was so fun to do research for. And I'm really, really glad that you're kind of getting into We don't have to call them all horror novels, right? You're getting into spooky novels. (laughs) Spooky. I like that. The word spooky is so much sweeter than scary. Um, Mm -hmm. Bringing up Jermaine and Taika reminds me of my favorite costume. When I was 16, my best friend and I dressed up as the robots from Flight of the Concord. Oh, my God. (laughs) We bought, like foil and we like wrapped boxes and we saved like soda caps and I remember we used like air docks metal air docks (laughs) as our limbs we were like I was 16 and I think he was like 18 or 19 so we were way too old to be in costume (laughs) oh I disagree (laughs) it was just so much fun I really loved that costume um do you have a favorite costume from your childhood I do so When I was very tiny, I must have been four. It was before school. Um, My mom asked me what I wanted to be for Halloween, and I told her that I wanted to be a tractor. And she was like, you mean like a farmer riding a tractor? And I was like, no, I would like to be a John Deere tractor. Oh, my God. Claire. (laughs) And she was like, my mom was so cool. She, you know... We did not go buy costumes, okay? She made everything by hand. And she was trying to figure out how to make me into an actual tractor and told me, and I was, I remember being super disappointed. She was like, you can't be a tractor, but you can be a farmer riding a tractor. And I was like, fine. (laughs) So it's like, there's like this little picture of me where she had a cardboard box that she cut a hole in the middle and painted like a John Deere tractor. And then I had two straps made out of, neckties that went over me to hold it so I was it looked like I was sitting in it and then I had a mustache painted on me and a hat and a little corn cob pipe like you did not need the mustache <laughs> I know right no I was a male farmer riding a tractor oh my god that is so sweet not a princess you know just I wanted to be a piece of machinery I love how we were both pieces of machinery. We were so not into being humans. (laughs) So cute, though. Um, We're just a couple of little pieces of machinery. It all adds up in the end. (laughs) It all makes sense. 